Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. The CEO and founder of the Global Autism Project, Molly Ola Pinney, is back on the show to talk about the motto that drives our work, do with, not for. For almost 20 years, the Global Autism Project has been providing sustainable clinical, administrative, and leadership training to autism centers seeking guidance around the world. Our Skill Corps Volunteer Program is an opportunity for self-advocates and professionals to travel to our international partner sites and collaborate with their local teachers and therapists. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Autism Project's history and mission, please listen to my conversation with Molly in Episode 2. In today's conversation, we discuss the meaning of doing with others and not for them, the essential, preferable, preferable to me framework, doing with the autistic community, and the importance of listening. We also make two big announcements that we think will have a huge impact on the autism community. Stay tuned until the end to hear them. In this episode, discover what's possible when, instead of teaching someone to fish, you ask them what they like to eat. To learn more about our organization and the work we do, please visit globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, join our Facebook group Autism Knows No Borders, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. And now, I bring you Molly Ola Pinney. Hi, Molly. Welcome back on the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. This is my favorite podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So we do have a couple of exciting announcements to make, but let's save that until the end. We do. Yep. And I wanted to start off by going into more depth of our mission at the Global Autism Project and what drives the work that we do. So just a little backstory. From the moment I became involved with the organization as a Skill Corps volunteer back in 2018, I was really drawn into the idea of do with, not for. So could you talk about how you came up with that motto and the reasoning behind it? Yeah. So first of all, the actual sort of hashtag do with, not for um, was sort of, you know, it's like we've been doing this work and trying to think about how to describe it. And I was invited to do a TEDx talk. And so for that, you really have to have an idea worth sharing and best to have it be about five words or less. So we spent a lot of time thinking like, okay, so like we do it with other people, with their insight, with their with centering, their experience, like all this. And we settled on do with, not for. And it really does speak to how we do our work here. You know, the why we do our work is the partners around the world. The why we do our work is because we know that in places where autism is little understood, it can put people in harm's way, honestly. That's really why we do this work. And the how of it is doing with doing with the local community. See, a lot of times in international development, 
work. It will be somebody coming in and essentially, you know, we've all heard the the proverb, right? Like give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. And it's a lot of giving fish, right? And just saying, here's a fish for you and a fish for you. I actually like to take that one step further. I like to take that to ask them if they're hungry and what they like to eat. Because I think a lot of times in international development, what we see, what we experience is that people are coming in and not only just handing out the you know fish, so to speak, but they're also just handing out fish to people who don't necessarily eat fish. Vegetarians, maybe, literally. (laughs) So I think the do with, not for really just talks about the importance of that, of asking people, of starting with a conversation. One of the things that has been true about our work for as long as we've been around is that we work in places where we are invited. We don't go, you know, looking at the whole planet and going like, oh, yeah, that would be a great place to work. In fact, partners who work with us around the world, they apply to be a part of the Global Autism Project Network. It's not a paternalistic, like, let us come and help you. It's like, these are people who are going to work in partnership around the world. What we're really building is a global network of people to do this work. It's really easy to feel alone and therefore desperate if you are the only people doing the work in this community. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things our partners share with us all the time. I mean, we were just on a call and our partner, Mafair, who I know has been on here as well, was sharing that in Ecuador, you know, right now we're doing this leadership training with all of our partners around the world, Thursday mornings, and today we just had one. <laughs> so we're, we're always extra excited after. It's just this amazing moment where it's people from all over the world coming together, sharing their experiences sharing their challenges, sharing their joys, and just being with each other. And it's not translated. It's run in English currently. And so obviously that's a barrier that we are working on. And also what she shared is that, you know, she's like, my team isn't able to understand every single thing that's being said. And they get so much out of it because they don't feel alone and they feel supported. Mm -hmm. She's always telling us we're making a difference in the world. And it's like just that little thing. That little thing, you know, and having people awaken to their own power and their own possibility. And that's always been what this work is about. It's about this idea that we're stronger together. If we were going in and doing for them, it would look a lot different. There is no Global Autism Project Kenya. There is no Global Autism Project India. There is no Global Autism Project Ecuador, Rwanda, Ghana, wherever we've worked, there is no Global Autism Project there. We do not establish our presence. We support them in building their capacity to provide services. Yeah. Can you give an example for someone to understand, like in a practical sense, what would doing for look like and how would that compare to doing with? Yeah. So there's a few different ways it can look. One of the things could be just coming in and actually doing the work with the kids. You see this sometimes in just going in and performing the surgeries and then leaving, you know, with the idea that, well, it takes a lot of training to do surgery. It takes a lot of training to do this work. And doing with looks like actually providing that training, actually providing that support and working yourselves out of a job. And, you know, I think that that's one really important piece. Doing four might look like we raise all the money and we build the centers around the world. We don't do that 
All of the centers are independently owned and operated. They are not Global Autism Project. They are part of the network. They receive training from us. Some of them sometimes have a sign that say Global Autism Project. Many of them have pictures on the wall from our visits, just as we have pictures on our wall <laughs> from our visits. But yeah, it's really about establishing independence and sustainability. Yeah, it really is. I think that's kind of the most important piece, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what we want to create is an opportunity for our partners to be able to establish services, build communities. And I think that's another important piece, right? In the places where we work, the work has never been about just the clinical training because it can't be. And because we feel it shouldn't be. But early on, it was just because it couldn't be. You couldn't go in and provide clinical training without building a support community for the parents. See, when we first started working in a lot of the countries where we worked, parents were not bringing their kids to the centers. That was one of the biggest things that we were working with our partners to try to get people to do was to actually bring their kids and not only to the centers, but out of their houses. I can't tell you the number of times I heard stories about kids who are locked up or alone at home and the parents don't know what to do and they're fearful. Mm. And that's the reality of the work we do. We don't talk about that a whole lot because it's a lot more fun to focus on the positive and all the great things that are happening. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't be here 18 years later if it weren't for those, those real things that are happening. And make no mistake. This is not like, oh, those people over there, they treat those people that know. This is global. There are kids in the U.S. who are also not being sent to school, not being brought to centers, not getting access to services because of the stigma around autism. Yeah. It really makes you think that we have a long way to go. We all do. Mm -hmm. We all do. And, you know, I think one of the most important things, especially right now, is in really listening to each other, listening to each other's needs, you know, deep in the ABA community and the autistic self-advocacy community, you know, and there's a lot of disagreement, there's a lot of disconnect, and there's a lot of shutting each other down that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And context is decisive, and you really have to look at the context of what's being done and taught where in all of it. And it's easy to say, you know, the puzzle piece is a horrible thing and we should not have it and it represents harm to us. Maybe not easy to say, that's not fair to say, but we can say that, right? And if we go into a community where a parent has been doing all this research and they're just looking and they're desperate and they're trying to figure out, you know, and they see our, we're walking around and we have a puzzle piece on our tote bag and they're like, there's that puzzle piece. I know what that means. Right or wrong, it represents something to somebody. So it's not an easy cut and dry decision to say, hey, we're not using it anymore. It's like we've carried these bags around countries where that has been the one thing that has opened up a conversation with a family member in a market. There's a lot of conversation right now around, should we teach eye contact? Should we allow people to engage in stimming behavior? Should we not? And I get it. And again, it's nuanced. And context is decisive. And in the context of, if you go into the market and you're doing these behaviors, Potentially your life is in danger. 
We were talking with a staff member today who was reminding us that if you are a black man engaging in stimming behavior, that could put your life in danger if you're dealing with the police. And so we really have to consider all of these aspects. And I get it. I, I get it. I want to live in a world where we can all be whoever we are, whatever expression it is. See, we've limited, we've limited the expression of being human to kind of these binaries, right? Like man, woman, normal, not normal. We've done that. And it's really sad because there really is no right way or wrong way to express being human. And where do we start with all of this? So we're happy to have the conversations with our partners around the world. We're happy to have self-advocates travel and share their perspectives. And also, they get to hear the perspectives of our partners who, who are dealing with these real challenges. Could you explain how the framework regarding essential, preferable, and preferable to me fits into all of this? Yeah, absolutely. The framework of essential, preferable, preferable to me started with we were teaching a specific skill. This was about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. Nah, I don't know. Somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago. We'll just leave it at that. I don't know the years anymore. 2020 really messed that up. <laughs> but at some point, over a decade ago, apparently, we were teaching a skill. And this particular skill was the collection of frequency data. And frequency data is often collected with a tally counter. One of those things that you see bouncers at clubs or sometimes they use them on sports fields. And so we were searching around the market and the entire city of Accra, Ghana, looking for a tally counter. And we were like, well, I guess we can't teach this. We can't find a tally counter. And what we realized in that moment is that, wait a minute, it's not essential that they use a tally counter. It's essential that this data gets collected. That's what's essential. It's preferable that it's frequency data, that it's actually going to show us how often something happens per hour, not just a count at the end of the day, right? It's like this actually happens throughout the day. And it's preferable to us that a tally counter is used. But if we're so focused, and we were so focused on finding a tally counter by walking around the markets and looking or yeah, we weren't going to have any data collected. So this is a framework that I've used in other work that I've done that has gone well beyond the essential of data gets collected. You know, I use it with my wife when we talk about the dishwasher. <laughs> it is essential that the dishes get put in the dishwasher. It is preferable that they get put on specific shelves, apparently. It is preferable to her that they get tetris in perfectly, <laughs> moved around perfectly, and the dishwasher is only run at some unknown interval. And so if she's so focused on putting the dishes in like Tetris and running the dishwasher at a certain specific interval, she's going to lose sight. It's essential the dishes get put in the dishwasher. And she's going to live with someone who leaves the dishes on the counter because I don't even know how you want them in the dishwasher. <laughs> so in this conversation, 
It may be preferable to us that we live in a world where we are allowed to engage exactly as we want to engage and nobody ever tells us anything differently. It is essential we are able to live our lives. It is essential. And I think, you know, you can take anybody from all over the map. You can take ABA, you can take autistic self-advocates, you can take our partners around the world, you can take Global Autism Project as an organization, and we can all agree on one thing. And that is that people with autism should be able, or autistic people, we can't even agree on that, okay? But what we can agree on is that they should not be harmed. They should not have their lives taken from them. We can all agree on that. And so I'm hopeful that we can start there and look at what that looks like. And I really get that the definition of harm varies across populations. Get it? We can all agree that nobody with autism should have their life taken from them. Yeah, exactly. It's all about that context, like you were saying. Whatever situation that we're in, whether it's in the US or in India or wherever, the environment can be so different. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, if you get bogged down and stuck in that what's preferable to me, you lose sight of what's essential. And this happens in the online world with, you know, this day and age of just polarization and people getting really stuck on their identities. Yeah. You know, we see it across politics, not just in the autism world. So I think it's something to be aware of. Like it doesn't have to be that way. We can learn from each other. Not everyone is going to think the same way. Everyone isn't. I feel like it's very individualistic even to say everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Maybe it's a very American thing, <laughs> but it's okay. You can think that. But if you shut people down or shut people off, it's not workable. How are we going to progress from there? Exactly. And and here's just the thing, right? You have lost your ability to ever influence or impact the way that somebody is thinking about something when you're immediately making them wrong and telling them no. You've just lost your ability to do it. And I get it. I get it because I've done it. I have some very clear, specific thoughts about how things should be done internationally. And I talk about them. And I've won awards for them. And in my mind, the right way to do it is to do with and not for. And I was on the Maasai Mara in Kenya about, again, I don't know years, six years ago. <laughs> Let's just pick a year. And I remember someone came up to me and they said, oh, we run an orphanage. And I think we have some kids with autism in the orphanage. Well, I have my own opinions about orphanages. I don't think orphanages should be run by people from other countries. And I have a lot of facts and a lot of books and a lot of resources and a lot of articles and a lot of education, and a lot of personal experience to back up why orphanages should not be run by people from other countries. And so I just blew them off. They said, oh, can I give you my phone number? And I said, yeah, sure. Okay. Bye. I didn't even keep their phone number. Because what's preferable to me is that you're not working with kids in an orphanage. What's essential is that those kids with autism in the orphanage get access to a community who can support their needs. Yeah. I could have built a relationship with those people running the orphanages. I don't know how many orphanages they run. 
I cut off any chance at possibility. Possibility was no longer present. I got rid of their phone number. I'm not dealing with an orphanage, please. We thought about that back in Ghana. We learned about that. No, we don't do that here. And I think about that all the time. I think about how judging them and making them wrong because I didn't like the way in which they were doing their work really impacted someone's life. And I'm not sure who they are. And I've Googled it. (laughs) I don't know. And I could have formed a relationship with those people. I could have gotten curious about them. I could have asked them what got them involved with orphanage work. And I probably would have found that their heart is in the right place. I probably would have found that they're loving, caring people who are doing the best they can with what they know. Usually people have good intentions. Yes. And I fully get the argument that that's not enough. And also, it's a starting point. I could have had a conversation. I could have spoken potentially to their entire company. We could have worked together. Maybe they ran other orphanages with more kids. I've been to orphanages that have kids with autism in them. And you might not like ABA, but I tell you what, you do not like what's going on in these orphanages where people have no idea what to do with these kids. I don't talk about this a whole lot because, again, I'd rather focus on the great stuff that's happening. But I think it's important, especially, especially as we've all been forced to engage on the internet in sound bites and emojis. It's really important to get that, that all over the world, there are things happening that nobody wants to have happen to these kids and adults if they make it to adulthood. Yes. So, Molly, I want to transition over to how this has kind of shaped doing with the autistic community. Yeah. You know, one of the things that has allowed the Global Autism Project to exist for 18 years so far and to survive, knock on wood, I know we're still in it, but survive a global pandemic is our constant willingness to look at ourselves and what we're doing and to look at, are we being who we say we're being? Are we doing with and not for? And I think that what in the last year, especially as we're hearing from more and more autistic voices and through the podcast and the, you know, some people don't know that there's a lot of work and conversations and research that goes into producing a podcast episode. And if you've ever done research on the internet, you know, you start looking at one thing and you're down a rabbit hole looking at the next thing and you're learning about something else. You oh, know? yeah. Oh, yeah. So we have learned a lot as an organization. And I said earlier around the world, if people make it to adulthood, people ask me all the time, do you work with adults with autism in other countries? You can ask people in other countries and some of them will tell you, we don't have adults with autism. And you think, well, surely that's not possible because autism doesn't impact your lifespan. The way society interacts with autism does. That's changing. That has changed a lot in the close to 20 years I've been working in this field. There are more and more autistic self-advocates around the world. And, you know, it occurred to us, it was actually, it was before the pandemic. I think it was 
probably maybe even a year before year, maybe even two before the pandemic, we really started looking at, we had a number of autistic employees and we were getting into just some really amazing kind of after hours conversations on ableism. And it was just a lot of learning and really great. And so what we really learned is that we're seeing our partners around the world as the people that we're working in partnership with. People, the parents, the professionals, and also the autistic community has a lot to offer and a lot to share. And we can learn so much. We can learn so much about our inherent biases. We can learn so much about ableism. We can, there's just so much to learn by truly listening and getting curious. I've started conversations with autistic self-advocates who say ABA is the worst thing in the world. It's abuse. They've literally put up their hands and gone at me. (laughs) And we've had conversations and we've just gotten curious. And we've gone from this to, sure, I'd love to help you with that. I'd love to be on your podcast. I'd love to, you know, whatever it is. It's like we're able to sort of bridge that gap by just getting curious about each other. Yeah. And from a clinical standpoint, listening to the harm that ABA has caused and acknowledging that, learning from it. Acknowledging that. Yeah. Yeah. And people want to be heard, giving them that space to express that and applying their recommendations. Absolutely. Sometimes based on the context, it can't always be done, but in the perfect environment, not continuing to teach forced compliance or that pure extinction that really does cause trauma in the moment. Like I've seen this because I was taught this way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. almost 10 years ago when I started as a BT and I've myself had to do a lot of unlearning also. Of course. Yeah. So I'm so thankful for these autistic voices speaking up and bringing awareness so that we can then make sure that our partners around the world are also practicing humane, compassionate ABA. Yeah. So that is one thing I think that is really great about being able to work with our partners around the world in places where even educating the autistic population is a novel idea. You know, we get to bring the learnings. We get to bring the learnings of compassion. We get to bring the learnings of trauma-informed. We get to bring this with us. We get to start where we are now. And what's beautiful about that is with the Skill Core program, people travel with us. They tend to be a little bit more open and amenable to tweaking the way in which they're working, to adjusting their thinking because they're in a brand new culture. They're in a brand new place. And they're sort of like, how should I? And then they bring it back. And I think, you know, to your point about acknowledgement, acknowledgement goes a long way. And we have a really, really big problem in this culture and in this world at dealing with and addressing acknowledgement. We haven't acknowledged slavery. We haven't acknowledged the trauma that other health professions have caused. We haven't acknowledged the trauma of ABA. We haven't acknowledged it. Yeah. We haven't actually listened and heard what the concerns are. And when we do, we go, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And this is distinct from the context needs to be considered. 
Because I have had these conversations with autistic advocates who tell me no one should ever be taught to not stim. And I'm like, okay. And rather than saying, what if, yeah, but, yeah, but, I just start asking them questions. I just get curious about it. And I really genuinely say, like, what if you're in a country where if you're stimming in public, you run the risk of being kidnapped and brought for an exorcism? It's like, well, yeah, they, sorry, they can't stim in public. Okay, so what do we do as practitioners in that case? What if they're a grown adult black male and they're stimming in public? And they're going to have an interaction with the police. Really, genuinely, not what if, yeah, but I'm trying to one-up you. But like, how do we address that? Say we address that by training the police. Ah, yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And there are a lot of police. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what does Skill Corps look like in the future now that we're working with the autistic population? Yeah. I mean, you know, the funny thing is it doesn't look wildly different than it did a couple of years ago. We have had autistic self-advocates traveling with Skill Corps for the past, um, almost since it started, honestly. And then we've really increased and really made an effort to have more autistic self-advocates traveling. So what does Skill Corps look like? It looks like an opportunity to meaningfully engage with autistic self-advocates. It looks like an opportunity to have these hard conversations with partners around the world. It looks like an opportunity to just collaborate, to learn from each other, to learn different ways of of listening. Honestly, a lot of what Skill Corps looks like is learning to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so optimistic about the future with international travel now that a lot of people in the U.S. are getting vaccinated against COVID. So I'll let you share that first announcement. Yeah. So we are going to be opening applications for Skill Corps 2022. And It brings me no greater joy. We had a call the other day with alums and there was a slide that said, welcome back, Skill Corps. And I thought I was just going to burst into tears. It just, you know, it, it, for us, when we canceled the trips, I've talked about it on the podcast before, like it was a decision made that night, announced that morning kind of thing. And it just felt like we had no idea how long it was for. I remember we thought, oh, we'll postpone the trips until May. And so to be able to say, welcome back, Skill Corps, to be able to welcome people, to be able to have people joining us again, to have people be able to be excited about possibilities again, we're really thrilled. So we have a number of 2020 travelers who were not able to travel, and they will be traveling in 2022, and then we will have other spots available for travelers. So now is the time to apply. <laughs> we are, we have already, we've been kind of whispering about it so far. Applications were not even officially open and we're already getting emails after email every day. So great. So I'll put a link in our show notes for people who are interested that they can go to our website and the link to apply is directly on there. So globalautismproject.org. Yeah, excellent. And, and and so as for the second announcement, you know, we've been busy working behind the scenes to create something really exciting, very special. Yeah. And what it is, do you mind if I go ahead and 
and talk about Go it ahead. a little yeah. bit? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're building this online platform for our community where people who are related to autism, whether they're a self-advocate, a family member, or a service provider, where everyone can come together and connect and know that they're not alone. And what's special about this space is that we really want to cultivate you know, this vulnerability and freedom to be authentic, not making people wrong, going back to that earlier part of our conversation, right? Keeping that framework at the forefront when we're engaging in these conversations online so that there isn't this fear of rejection or judgment. Yeah. And as we know, especially in COVID times right now, people are feeling lonely or even kind of misunderstood whatever their role is in the world and in the autism community. And the truth is our community isn't connected. So we have these amazing podcast guests, we have these amazing listeners, and they just don't even know about each other. So sometimes we get these comments on Instagram, on YouTube, and I'll go and tell the guests, did you see what that person said about your episode? And they're like, no, I didn't even know. So what's great about this platform too is that it'll give people a chance to connect, to get to know each other, to say hi, to ask questions. Yeah. And also share insights about the episodes, learn different perspectives, and kind of gain that momentum to create change in their own communities. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so exciting. We'll have exclusive events and monthly themed hangouts and Q&A sessions with previous podcast guests. And also what I'm really excited about is like roundtable discussions for experts to come on and talk about something specific. So this is also opening today, and I'll put a link to this in our show notes too. It's a busy month. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's just so much exciting stuff going on in the world right now, and this is just another access point to bring people together and really transform how the world relates to autism. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm very excited about it. We shared it with our international partners today. They'll be in there. It's really about building a network. It's about building a network of people imagining just a better world, full stop, end of discussion. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work to be done in this world. Yeah. And I just love that we get to be with the people who who are up to it. So Molly, to close out, I do want to just ask you if you have any advice for people who are interested in doing with not for, what would you say to them? Oh, simple. Listen, listen, listen and silent are the same letters rearranged. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence. All right, Molly. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I love being here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. When helping others, we can do what we think is best for them, or we can collaborate with them. Our global autism partners are the experts in their own communities. They know what's best for their students based on their particular environment. When Skill Corps volunteers work with them on goals that are socially significant to their culture, the results are more meaningful and sustainable. Applications for Skill Corps 2022 are open now. If you're a self-advocate or a professional in the field of autism services, 
Visit globalautismproject.org forward slash skillcore and reserve your spot today. Doors to our Global Autism community platform are also open. However you're connected to autism, there's a place for you at community.globalautismproject.org. Join a group of passionate changemakers and transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.